The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. 2020 has become a national year of reckoning on racial justice issues, and as lawmakers on Beacon Hill are hammering out a final version of a sweeping police reform and racial justice bill, a group of their aides are independently pushing for change. The group is called Beacon Block, B-L-O-C, Building Leaders of Color. They're approximately three dozen black statehouse staffers who work under the Golden Dome and have garnered the support of more than 40 outside organizations and solidarity from more than 300 current and former legislative staffers. They say they want to meet the moment, and in July, Beacon Block unveiled a list of eight action points, changes they want to see in the product and culture of the Mass State House. They cited stories of harassment and inappropriate race-based remarks in the People's House. Um, joining me this Friday on the State House Takeout are Kiera Sterling, new executive director of the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus, Maya Rayner, Legislative Director for Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, and Mark Martinez, Policy and Budget Advisor to Senator Pat Jalen. Uh, hi, folks. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. So great to be here. Hi. So tell me a little bit about who you are, who Beacon Block is. You work for senators, you work for representatives' offices. Um, any other offices within the building? Yeah, um, well, that's a great question. So uh, Beacon Block uh, stands for uh, Building Leaders of Color. Um, and we are right now a collective of state house staffers. Um, and we have staffers who work on the Senate and uh, House side. Um, but as we know, that is, uh, uh, you know, the bulk of people who work in the state house. But there are um, several other constitutional officers who have offices in the state house. So, um we're working to build out that collective. Sure. And um, Maya, I know you talked to our reporter, Chris Lasinski, a bit about this when uh, he was covering this issue over the last couple of months. But tell us a bit, um, and this is open to all of you, actually, just tell us a bit about the moment where we find ourselves in 2020 that made you say, this is the time to talk about negative experiences on Beacon Hill. This is the time to push for change. How did this coalition come together? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I will let Mark take it. But I will just say it was 400 years in the making. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know, really where it came from is, you know, once upon a time, not too long after COVID hit, um, it, it was really just a group of staffers that came together just to talk about, you know, how we could support each other, you know, with progressive staffers about how we could support each other and how we could you know, do the work of trying to get progressive legislation passed in the state house. And then what happened was George Floyd was murdered by the police. And much like the rest of the world, it transformed the work that we were doing. And so in the wake of George Floyd's murder, what we saw was across the country, but certainly across the state, you know, political leaders from the Senate president, the Speaker of the House, and plenty of other 
elected officials saying repeatedly that now is the time to uplift black voices and now is the time to center black voices and now is the time to follow the lead of those most impacted and follow the lead of black people. And that's when, you know, the black staffers involved in those early conversations just kind of looked at each other and was like, okay, if they are now, if they are going to affirm that that is what they are doing and they are going to, you know, proclaim to the world that they're going to start listening more to the experiences of black people in order to inform the policies that they're creating, then that needs to start from inside their own house. It needs to start from inside the state house and they need to start listening to us because you know black staffers trying to organize and trying to change things to better their circumstances didn't start with us, right? This has been going on for a long time. Um, some informal and some prior formal pushes to reform the way that the state house operates have come and gone and failed. And so, you know, we, we knew this was the time and we knew that if they were genuine about their calls to follow and listen and uplift black voices, that now is the time for us to put our voices into the mix. You mentioned some of the past formal pushes. Um, could, could you describe what, what some of that has been like? Yeah, so we were um, really fortunate not too long ago to have a conversation um, with Stephanie Everett, who is now running for state rep, I believe in the 12th Suffolk, um, and, but is a former state house staffer who worked for Senator Sonia Chang Diaz um, back in the day when the Senator was first elected. And she was able to tell us about how back in 09, there was a formal push of black staffers. You know, they tried to get meetings together with leadership and with you know, the parties that had the opportunity to make these changes. And, you know, she just told us how like those just really didn't go anywhere. They didn't produce the results. And like I said, that was a formal thing, but the informal, right? It, part of what black staffers always do is talk to each other about the experiences we have in the building and the things that we would like to see change in order for those experiences not to happen or in order for us to feel better supported after those experiences take place. Um, so that's what we talk about when we say both formal and informal conversations have been had about seriously changing some of the processes in the culture of the state house in the past. Yeah. And I would just add in 2016, um, there was actually an event held um, called uh, State House Speakout where uh, black and brown staffers um, at the end of the session um, <clears throat> came together to uh, talk about all of the bills that failed to pass that session and their direct ex lived experience around it. Um, that was organized by a few black staffers and that led to a, a statewide listening tour that the Black and Latino Caucus um, organized and did and so we really want to build off of that work. Uh, you know, we we know what the solutions are. We've listened to residents of color around the state. And so I think Beacon Block is really trying to build off of that and implement it now. Um, I think in all of our experiences in the state house, we have had a lot of uh, conversations, like Mark said, amongst each other. And um, from my personal experience in the Senate, there have been these conversations and you know, sort of actions to make that, to make changes around uh, uh, racial bias and sexual harassment 
but there never has been anything that's implemented to really make staffers feel safe. Um, and that's really where Beacon Block is coming in to say, you know, there have been so many of these instances where we have said, this is what we need. This is what this structure and the system is doing to our, our lives, our families. Um, and Beacon Block is here to, to stay, to um, implement those eight demands, but also to usher in continued change that staffers of color um, in the future um, need in order to feel safe and confident and uh, be able to do their work that they're paid to do. Um, because a lot of what we're talking about are, are uh, when we're talking about harassment, when we're talking about microaggressions, when we're talking about um, some of the ways that staffers of color and black staff in particular are disrespected, that is all taking away from our ability to effectively serve our constituents and um, the people of the Commonwealth. Yeah, th thank you, Maya, and, and thank you, Mark. Um, now, in, in the initial July 18th press release from Beacon Block, uh, you all mentioned some particular hostile moments encountered here in, in the People's House. Um, could you give a few examples uh, for our takeout listeners of some of these experiences? Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, so just speaking from my experience, um, I work for a legislator of color who uh, has in her 10 years been very dedicated in creating a, a pipeline for uh, staffers and interns um, and residents of color to get further connected into government. Um, and that has led to us having very diverse groups of staff, um, which is awesome. Um, but the, the overall kind of statehouse culture has reacted to that in, in very belittling ways. We've been called the United Nations um, several times. I've personally experienced um, harassment, inappropriate comments, and uh, you know the touching of my hair. Um, I have been in meetings where my existence has been completely devalued and been told that the community where I come from is never, is destined to always be that way because that's our nature. Um, so just on all levels from the individual level in my individual work, but also as a part of a team, um, I have felt uh, uh, belittled and marginalized because of my race as a black woman in the state house. Yeah, I, I would echo that. Like, I think that so many black staff, um, just like so many female staff, especially black female staff, have these stories mm -hmm. of inappropriate touching, of being um, dehumanized and devalued in really, you know, essential ways, right? So uh, for me personally, you know, that includes, you know, standing outside of a bar that I was told I had to go to in order to make connections, in order to understand, you know, how, how the state house works um, and being inappropriately touched. That includes being in my office um, and be, being called, you know, being referred to as you people, right? Being, being told that my, my experience is, is relative to my people, you people. Um, in this way, I've had legislators try and touch my hair. Um, I've had DCR rangers accuse me of, of forging entrance tickets to events. I've had DCR rangers doubt that I work in the building. Um, you know, I think that it, it, we, we often talk about this, the state house, not just as the state house, but as the kind of greater MA Poli ecosystem that includes not just legislators or not just the speaker um, or the Senate president, it includes, 
you know, all of the people that coalesce within it and including lobbyists, including constitutional officers. Um, and so I think that, you know, this is, this is happening at a lot of different levels. And, and, and one thing I do also want to note, you know, I think it's always valuable for, for us to share experiences, but I think that another reason why Beacon Block is so careful to not just put it all out there is because of, we know that there's a tendency to sensationalize Black pain and Black trauma and Black grief. Um, and so I think that, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about how we're engaging in these conversations with predominantly white institutions um, and a lot of the white folks within it, um, you know, it's careful that we're, we're, we're trying to be very careful that we're not just kind of playing out uh, the negative um, for all to see, but making sure that we're directly tethering it to the sort of systemic issue of a larger, um, you know, place and institution. Sure. And I, yeah. oh, uh, sorry, Mark, I, I just want to mention also that while Kiera has uh, very recently become the executive director of the Black and Latina Legislative Caucus, she has worked in the building for uh, for some time, right? You were formerly chief of staff to Representative Mark, I think, right? That's correct. Yeah, five years. Yeah. Um, uh, Mark, uh, go ahead. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I want to you know, build off of what both Maya and Kira just said, you know, especially with hair, obviously there's a podcast so people get see, but if, if you've ever been in the state house and saw like the six foot black dude with bleach blonde, really long curly hair, that's right. And so um, my hair gets a lot of attention um, for, for lots of reasons, but you know, a couple, the things that Maya and Kira talked about are really damaging because these damaging things happen and then you're asked to go back to work. And that's hard enough. Mm -hmm. um, my experiences have actually been in ways that have directly impacted my ability to do my work. And, you know, I've got lots of stories, but the one that I really like to tell, because like I said, it, it genuinely impacts my way to do my job, my ability to do my job is the number of times I've not received an email that I needed to receive um, in order to do my job because that email was sent to Mark Sanchez or Mark Ramirez or Mark Lopez or anybody but Mark Martinez. And to be clear, it's not that they're confusing me with a Mark Sanchez or Mark Lopez that's in the building to the best of my knowledge, that person doesn't exist. Um, it's that right with a common experience for me inside of the building and outside of the building is people hear a Hispanic last name that ends in a Z and they think that that's enough information. Um, and then, you know, as I said, I get called everything under the sun as long as it ends in a Z and sounds Spanish. Mm -hmm. um. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the the eight action points um, that Beacon Block hopes to see, and and the first one has come come to pass, as we know, really out of legislative necessity, uh, extending formal sessions past the end of July. Uh, the branches still need to tackle the budget, along with conference committee reports, which includes the policing reform and racial justice bill. Um, what? What does your group hope to see between now and January 5th, which is our new end of formals? We've heard from some leaders that they intend to stick closely to the budget, conference committee reports, COVID-19 bills. But are there any other specific bills or proposals that Beacon Block is hoping uh, that the House or Senate act on to address racial justice during this extended formal session? Is, is, is the policing bill enough? Uh, so what I would say to that... Um 
is, you know, as, as state house employees and residents of the Commonwealth, we are not only working on this legislation, uh, whatever it may be, but we are also directly impacted by it. And we have um, connections and experiences to the communities who are most vulnerable when we're talking about COVID-19, when we're talking about police brutality, when we're talking about all of these things. So for us, it's, it's less what bills do we need to see past the floor? Um, it's more, what can we be doing to make sure that people from these vulnerable communities have the ability and the access to their legislature to make sure that the things that they need are happening. Um, so for, for Beacon Block, we're, we're really about uh, making sure the state house is a safe space or a safer, I, I wouldn't fully call it any space safe um, in America for mm. black and brown people, but that's another uh, story. But um, I would definitely say that we're working to not just make this a, as a workplace uh, an improved space for black and brown people, but also for uh, residents of color as well. So um, I would definitely say that what we've done this session is not enough in totality because the structure that we've been doing this stuff on has been uh, based on a structure that is not accessible to a ton of people in this state. So, um, yeah. And I would also say that the thing about the eight requests that we put forward, um, is that it's a mix of long-term and short-term, right? It's, uh, there's some items that require kind of institutional, uh, changes that would be instituted through, um, like a legislative process, namely the rules debate is something that we're focusing on in uh, January and thinking about how to create a bicameral DNI office through the rules. Um, but even in the interim, before we even get there, you know, things like, you know, archival availability of black records and legislative documents is something that could happen, you know, really immediately. We've already had conversations with, you know, HR branches uh, HR both branches about this conversation about mechanisms for reporting microaggressions and uh, racial hostilities and workplace abuse, right? Um, but I think more more specifically, what I want to say is that Vegan Block is trying to get at a political culture, right? So like we understand that there are things that have to be enshrined in statute and things that have to happen through that process, but we're also committed to action through having discourse and having dialogue about all of the things that that, that people kind of aid and abet daily, right? And there's daily things that you can do to change that. Um, and I think that that runs through the course of all of our requests that we put forward. Yeah, and I think the only other thing that I'll add to that is, um, you know, I, I think, right, we intentionally didn't come out with specific or endorsing specific policies. And that's for a couple reasons. Um, and I think one of the large reasons is whether or not the policing bill is enough or not is a direct result of the institution that it had to go through to get to where it is. And so what we're talking about here is not whether one specific bill or law passed is, is good enough to address histories of um, inequity and racism, what we're talking about is how can we redesign the institution that has reinforced those things. And, you know, it's our sincerely held 
belief that if we redesign the way that the institution operates and if we attack this at um, an institutional and systemic level, the thing that will come out of that will be consistently better policy, right? And, and, and we know this, right? I think it, it should be obvious. And I think it's something that, you know, most politicians and most political leaders have said, the more diverse perspectives we have around the table when we're creating policy, the better policy can be. And, right, of course, we, we always bring in people from the outside and we bring in activists and impacted parties to have those conversations. But what if from the ground up, what if every step of the process involved people from these communities, which is why one of the things that we do talk about is a talent pipeline. One of the things that we do talk about is how do we better recruit and retain staffers of color, um, you know, for our purposes, specific, uh, particularly black staffers. So that way, you know, th those perspectives are baked into every single step of the process and they're just baked into the institution as the institution kind of churns and does its business. And just to add off of that, um, when talking about uh, how far away we are from having people of color at every step of the process. There are nine joint committees where there are no uh, black or Latino legislators um, at all. Um, as well as there are, when we talk about accessibility of the state house, we're talking about the fact that there are uh, very little um, ways for people who English is not their first language to navigate um, the state house, whether online or in person, um, in hearings, you know, it is common in a lot of municipal spaces to have translation equipment. That's not something that we have. Um, the fact that uh, every office, uh, like Mark said, um, has the ability to have these conversations with activists and people with lived experiences. However, there is no obligation to do that. And so that really is what ties into our ACE demand, which is the creation and implementation of an office of uh, equity in policy. Every policy is an opportunity for racial justice. Um, and if we as a legislature uh, truly do believe that, we need to make sure that at the bedrock of policies that we're moving forward, equity is, um, is there. Um, and so we're, we're, that is why we're pushing um, for, for that piece. But I just wanted to be clear when we're saying the state house is not accessible, what that really means. Um, and it also looks like a fear of, of your safety. You know, if you are a person of color and the first thing that you see when you walk into the state house is a metal detector and a bunch of folks in uniforms, that's automatically a different level of comfort. Um, and so we really need to investigate looking at all ways that we are trying to um, uh, connect with the residents that we're here to serve. So I, I, I am looking at some of these some of these action points uh, like two, three, and four. The central office on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which Kiera mentioned. Uh, standardized staff onboarding, uh, ways to report and address racially motivated aggressions. Um, and so I would imagine that some of the points like that would be things we might see come up in the rules debate in, in, in January then? Are those some of the, the points that you'd be looking to address at that rules stage as, as the new general court gets seated? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I wanna be clear um, to the credit of both the Senate president and the speaker's office, you know, they both sat down with us, had pretty at length meetings 
um, where you know they were really open to hearing us and engaging with us on you know our experiences in the building and the changes that we're seeking. Um, and you know they both you know made it clear to us that you know they're going to continue those conversations um, and that you know they're excited to continue those conversations. But what they both made clear to us is that a lot of the changes that we're seeking have to come through the rules debate. Um, and so, you know, that is where we are starting to shift our focus to see, you know, what does that look like? How do we, you know, leverage the rules debate and how do we leverage the support that we've received from, you know, legislators in the building and advocates from outside of the building um, to, you know, really bake in these changes. And like I said, the, you know, the, these rules debate are about institutional changes. Um, and so that is, you know, why a lot of our focus is on that. Again, not all of our focus. There are things that can be achieved in the rules debate. Um, like I think um, Kira mentioned, you know, we're focusing on the rules debate, but, you know, policy changes don't necessarily mean cultural changes. They don't mean cultural shifts. They don't mean shifts right. how people think and how people operate um, in the building and around people of color. So there's still plenty of work to be done even outside of the rules. Um, but the rules is kind of the, the formalized process that we have to go through to achieve some of the change that we want. Um, but we're also leaning on our allies and our supporters to you know, challenge people when they engage in behavior that is detrimental to black staff and to staffers of color. Because that's the only way that you shift culture is by letting people know certain things are unacceptable in these spaces. Now, I know you've mentioned um, the, the the talent pipeline, and um, I think Mark and Maya, you both brought up the kind of the demographics of the legislature um, as well. Uh, a, a lot of staffers ultimately run for office themselves. Uh, we, we see it pretty much every cycle. Um, and so I'm wondering, does does that make a lack of diverse staff in the pipeline a factor in the legislature being kind of non-representative of the population. I see you, I, for the benefit of our listeners, on, on the video screen, uh, Maya is nodding her head vigorously. <laughs> Sam, you uh, got it right. Um, ding, ding, ding. Like if this was Jeopardy, like the confetti would come down and everything. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think one of the things we've really identified is if you are not in, in the state house when um, as a staff that can completely change the trajectory of your career. You may not have the networks um, available to you to build up a campaign. You may not have the networks available to you um, to work on a campaign. And so when we talk about a talent pipeline, we're really talking about ways in which we are making it easier for uh, people of color to um, overcome the social economic barriers there are to having an unpaid internship, to making sure that um, the that people of color know about uh, jobs within the state house. I think something that's very common is that uh, legislators and people who already work in the state house pass around resumes and uh, show support for folks in their networks to get jobs. Um, but we really need to make sure that the roles that we're filling in the state house, particularly in districts where there is so much of a need to communicate with communities of color, to making sure that you are directly 
bringing in the experiences of your constituents into that work. Uh, it, it is not enough to uh, just check the resumes that your colleagues have sent around. Um, and so what we're really looking at is how do we make sure that as we move forward, um, the ways in which that we're engaging the amazing residents and, and dedicated young people of color in, in the Commonwealth um, allow them to have a trajectory where they can run for office um, because of, of those networks and because of having um, um, not necessarily those connections, but making it leveling the playing field by building up those who are most affected by the, the barriers of uh, systemic oppression. And additionally, you know, I think that Sam, that's a that's a great point. And I'm so excited that you brought that up because we also need to make sure that the culture itself is sustainable when people of color speak, enter the state house to work, right? Because the what we see so often is, you know, you come into the building and you're so excited and you feel uh, this this uh, this truly amazing burden, right? To to be in this place, this privilege, truly, right? To be in this place. Um, that you've always wanted to work and make changes for your community. And when you engage and you find all of these instances where you feel barred from the table or you feel not listened to or you feel dehumanized, that disincentivizes you from moving forward or just remaining in politics to be, just to begin, right? And, you know, the fact of the matter is we need greater representation at every level um, and we need you know, people of color at the table and that people of color will not want to be there if they're continuously told that they're not allowed or that they shouldn't be or that what they have to say is not of worth. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's just, it's also important to, to note, right, that like retaining and, and, and making sure that that pipeline is in place has to do so fundamentally with, with the culture and the environment that we're offering to those staff members as they join the, the state house. Mm. Th thank you, Kira. Um, so Beacon Block wrote to the speaker, the Senate president, and State Secretary Galvin last month, right? And, and Galvin was included um, on that communication because one of the action points deals with lobbyists. And I think one of you already um, mentioned it in passing that there have been negative interactions, you say, with um, a number of lobbyists. And one of the proposals is to create a, a new way to suspend lobbyists for those negative interactions. Um, have, have you heard back from Galvin yet? No. No. <laughs> yeah, we haven't. Um, and actually two of our uh, demands are things under his purview, the archival availability and the uh, oh, right. uh, need to further regulate lobbyists about uh, instances of racial abuse and harassment. Um, so we have not heard directly from him. Um, I know he put out a statement saying that there needs to be some changes to legislation um, to, to do that. Um, however, he has not come to the table to support us in that. Um, and I just want to note that, you know, the state house is such a unique place in the fact that we actually have to, in order to adjust our HR structure at all, we have to pass a law um, to do that. And that's very unique and very different from many other workplaces. So for folks who have been supporting Beacon Block, for folks who have questions about Beacon Block, um, in order to support, it is it is so critical and, and we are open to having those conversations and questions um, because of the unique position of the state house where in order 
to have some of those institutional changes, we actually have to get a vote on that, unlike a lot of other different workplaces. So the support that we have right now from over 350 individuals, um, 200 of which are current and former staffers, over 50 statewide organizations support us is, is critical for us to be able to, to meet that highly unique challenge of having an HR structure, having a um, institution that supports us in order for us to feel okay staying in these positions. Because like Kier said, diversity is not enough. You can increase diversity all you want, but if you're not making that um, institution safer and more responsive to the needs of those diverse folks, uh, you're just creating another problem. Um, so we are really um, just focused in on how we can get uh, not these eight demands, but larger institutional change um, pushed through. And um, getting the Secretary of State um, to to work with us on, on these issues is, is critical to that. So just wanted to um, really hit home how unique of a position it is to work in the State House um, and have uh, legislation be one of the only vehicles available to you in order to make your uh, make yourselves and your community feel um, heard in your workspace. Hey, any uh, any points that I've missed or, or anything that you folks um, really want to bring up before we draw this conversation to a close? I I would say that you know Beacon Block is at the point where we're really pivoting to start engaging everybody kind of. Uh, one-on-one. And I would encourage to any members and legislators that are listening, you know, to also sign on to the letter and also recognize that we want to work with you. And we want to hear from you. Um, you know, I think that, you know, Beacon Block is doing uh, a lot of outreach, um, but it's always great and always useful when people reach out to us as well, right? So, um, you know, this is a really tense time. And I think as the letter, you know, noted, uh, that we're all, we're all, we all have a part to play in in addressing and dismantling racial, like white supremacy and, and racial inequity. Um, and so we, we just wanna encourage members to reach out to us and start engaging in these dialogues with us. Um, and also encouraging your staff to do so as well. Um, as I said, we just, we all have a part to play. And I think that's an important point that needs to be underscored. Yeah, and we are in the midst of building up and creating a staff community. So while we definitely have um, these demands and are working to uh, change the state house as an institution, we're also uh, trying to be the change we wish to see in the world um, and are creating those. Um, yes, a very wise person once said that. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we are, you know, engaging um, staff of color, black staff in particular. Um, we are engaging staff who have um, not felt heard with their issues related to sexual harassment. And so we are really trying to um, create and uplift a staff community where these sorts of conversations no longer have to be um, in hushed tones in the bathrooms, but we can have a space where we can talk about these things and collectively address it with anti-racist solutions. And the only thing that I'll end on is just, um, because Kira and Maya did such a good job, but I'll just end on like a thank you. Um, you know, like, like Maya said, um, we've gotten so much, you know, pledged, 
support, I think more than any of us really thought was going to happen. Um, and it's been really incredible and uplifting to see that support from current staffers, former staffers, um, advocates and organizations that do a lot of business in the state house and are really, really essential to a lot of the good work that the state house does. Um, and to the elected officials that have also come out, you know, loudly in support, both state officials, city officials, county officials um, that have come out in loud support of what we are doing. Um, and, you know, either on Twitter or personally outreach to, you know, thank us for what we're doing and offer support. Um, it's been great. Um, I, I think it, it's really helped the three of us continue to do what we're doing. I think it's also really helped other staff members feel more comfortable coming forward and joining us in the work that we're doing, knowing that there's so much support out there. Um, and so, you know, to those of you that have showed support, again, thank you to those of you um, that are looking to, please reach out. You know, we're on Twitter at Beacon Block, B-L-O-C. Our Gmail is beaconblock at gmail.com. Um, and also, you know, if you're listening to this, there's a solid chance you know me, Maya, or Kira personally, um, or at least can find our email address. Um, please reach out, let us know. We would love to plug you into the work that we're doing um, and, you know, just continue um, what's been a whirlwind month, but, you know, a really, really exciting and uplifting month um, that, you know, leaves us hopeful that we can really, really do the things that we're trying to do here and really, you know, create some long lasting change. Sure. Hey, well, th thank you folks for joining us for the conversation today. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes left, but um, I, I gave you a heads up at the beginning that uh, as we round up the week on the takeout, uh, let's take a few takeaways from, from the news this week. Uh, and uh, Kiera, uh, Maya, and Mark, uh, if you'd like to just uh, name an interesting news story that you, that you saw this week uh, that you thought was interesting or impactful, um, what, uh, what, what stuck out to you, Kiera? Um, so much. Uh, but I, 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 so I think that I'm following very closely the MCAS uh, and this kind of question of high-stakes testing. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to see uh, just some development on that. But I think I, between that and the presidential, uh, you know, the, the DNC, it's just been it's just been such a firestorm. <laughs> <laughs> Every week uh, this this year seems to have been just a, a, a firestorm of news. Uh, uh, Maya, what, what stuck out to you? For me, um the the conversation around the uh, mass bail fund has really been um, something that has been on my mind since seeing some of the initial globe reporting. Um, I'm really glad to see that um, the editorial board has uh, stepped forward to clarify a lot of facts um, and uh, hearing so many people kind of weigh in on this issue of whether the bail fund is responsible for um, harm, for doing what they have uh, always expressed that they do, um, has really been interesting to me to see where folks in MA Poly are falling on that, um, particularly as someone who, who truly believes that these sorts of um, solutions need to be survivor and community centered. So um, for me, those, those stories around the mass bail fund have been, um, really it's it's been a lot of highs and lows with that for sure um and this isn't as local but uh 
it feels very much connected with the idea of um, having folks continue to be incarcerated. Um, seeing in California, they are not able to uh, fight wildfires as well as they have in the past because a lot of the folks who do that work uh, were incarcerated people who are now currently all sick with COVID because of a lack of decarceration efforts um, in California state and federal prisons. So um, for me, that is just the most ironic uh, uh, neoliberal um, dumpster fire I've ever seen. So uh, those are kind of the two stories for me that are sticking out. Thanks, Maya. Uh, Mark, what have you got? Yeah, I, I quickly want to uplift what Maya just said. The story with the mass bail fund has definitely been on my mind. Um, and just a quick plug, if you want, you know, a, a really thoughtful piece on it, uh, Michael Cox from both the Bail Fund and Black and Pink um, had a really thoughtful piece at WGBH um, that I think people should absolutely read. Um, but the thing that has been occupying my mind a lot more, it's not necessarily, it's a story that came out a few weeks ago, but it seems like every week and every few days we get more information. Um, and it's the Alex Morse um, race um, out in MAO1. I, it, born and raised in Western Mass um, as an openly gay man um, that operates in politics, I think what has happened to him and what has been uh, uncovered in that is just really chilling and really sad and really hurtful to see. Um, you know, I, I think there's still a lot that is unknown and, you know, we don't know to the extent um, uh, uh, the actions of anyone involved, but what we do know is that there's been some really concerted efforts to use really, really damaging age old um, homophobic tropes to attack an openly gay man in politics um, in a way that could have ruined his entire life and career. Um, and that is, I think that's a really chilling thing for, like I said, any openly LGBTQ person um, in politics. And um, that one has just been weighing heavy on my mind. Um, and, you know, I, I hope we see a, um, whatever could possibly considered a, a good resolution that comes out of that. Um, but I, I think it's something that, like I said, I've been paying attention a lot to and something that makes me sad. Mm, sure, sure. Um, all right. Well, folks, thank you for all that you've uh, you've shared with us uh, this week on the takeout, and uh, and thanks also for helping us round up some important stories in the news. Um, Kira Sterling, Maya uh, Rayner, and Mark Martinez uh, of Beacon Block. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, everyone listening. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.